You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Strange Familiars. Merry Christmas to those who celebrate. Happy winter holidays, whatever holidays you celebrate. Thank you so much for listening. Thank everybody for tuning in this year and for helping us make Strange Familiars happen. How are you doing, Allison, on this fine day after the solstice? Well, I'm reveling in the extra 22 seconds of light this morning. (laughs) We're quickly headed towards Christmas, and I have a very special talk with Brother Richard coming up for this episode. We talk about St. Nicholas, the real St. Nicholas. We talk about Christmas as an eternal event, Christmas apparitions, grave lights, Christmas decorations, and kind of what they mean, the meanings behind them, and a lot more. It's another wonderful talk with Brother Richard. We'll get to that in a minute. Brother Richard comes on the show, he takes his time to do it, and he asks nothing for it. I've asked him before, is there any place we can donate? And he gave me links to the Capuchin Day Center in Ireland, which is run by the brothers of Brother Richard's order. And you can make a donation there, www.capuchindaycenter, and they spell center the incorrect way. <laughs> it's It's C-A-P-U-C-H-I-N-D-A-Y-C-E-N-T-R-E dot I-E. That's www.capuchindaycenter.ie. And you can also donate to the American Mission at www.cskdetroit.org. And that's to help their work with the homeless. It's a good cause. You can find links in the show notes. Every episode, we put those links in there. It would be nice this time of year if you have some extra, if you can point it in that direction. If you enjoy Brother Richard's talks on the show, and if you enjoy Strange Familiars, 
We certainly would be happy for some donations to go that way from Strange Familiars listeners. All right, let's go ahead and get to my second annual Christmas talk with Brother Richard. I'd like to welcome Brother Richard back to Strange Familiars. How are you doing, Brother Richard? I'm good, thanks. It's good to be back with you. Oh, it's always great to have you on, and I'm very excited for our Christmas show, our second uh, annual Christmas show with Brother Richard. Thanks so much for coming on. No problem, no problem. I'm I'm just happy that the uh, the Irish invasion of strange familiars continues. <laughs> yes, yes. Between Monster Fuzz and Brother Richard and and a couple other guests we've had, it's uh, I said we're we're basically an Irish podcast at this point. Yeah, definitely. Doing doing your bit to uh, cement the uh, special relationship between the, the U.S. and Ireland over all these years. <laughs> there you go. The Monster Fuzz guys and I have uh, a back and forth about chips versus... Um, oh, I'm drawing a blank. What do you call potato chips there? Oh, crisps. Crisps. Chips versus crisps. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, go- we're going to do a, a, a chip versus crisp exchange because uh, they've only had Lay's, which I, is not a good representation. Of oh, okay. uh, American <laughs> chips, <laughs> so we will, we will have to have the great Ireland versus America potato chip slash crisp <laughs> challenge. But tonight we're going to be talking about Christmas. So happy sure. Christmas to you! Yeah, and to yours, and and to all the listeners as well. So you gave a few topics that we could talk about, starting with Saint Nicholas, mm. who yeah uh, was not originally a jolly fellow in a in a red furry suit no he was he was quite the warrior really um the warrior of faith uh, so saint nicholas the original version of of santa claus um sinterklaas saint nicholas was I suppose active in, in in turkey uh around about the, the the 300s or so he was a bishop and um was renowned for his compassion and kindness but also particularly for his very strident and strong theological views so uh, he attended one of the famous uh, church councils uh, that at the time were, were taking place and sort of codifying what, what it was that Christianity believed. And on one occasion, he faced off against one of the great heretics, as, as they would have been called in those days. Arius, Arius was, was uh, uh, the founder of a, a particularly uh, difficult heresy uh, for, for Christianity to kind of shed which was the idea that Christ had only been a human being who was sort of divinized um, rather than someone who was uh, within the Orthodox Christian tradition, um, someone who, who is the, the incarnation of the divine from the beginning. So um, Nicholas was so frustrated with Arius' speech, we're, we're told that he crossed the council floor and struck him soundly on the jaw. So he was someone who, who was um, fairly fairly solid and strident in, in his faith and in his, in his belief. In terms of his... Um, his compassion and some of the Santa Claus traditions and where they come down to us from. He was known as, as having a particular care for the poor. And um, the story goes that on one occasion he became aware of a, a man who was so riven with debt that he was preparing to sell his, his three daughters into um, prostitution uh, so as to be able to make money and, and, and pay off the debts that were threatening his family and his livelihood. So Nicholas took money, we're told, took gold coins, and there are various elements of the story, but the, the, one, the one that sort of goes with the Santa Claus one particularly is that he visited the house by night and, and dropped the gold coins down the chimney. Ah. Um, and so this is where a couple of the, the St. Nicholas traditions uh, arise from Santa Claus coming via the chimney, 
the gold coins traditionally in Europe were represented by uh, oranges or tangerines or golden fruits that were that were given in the stockings. And the story is that the man in question, you know, they were drying the laundry uh, by the fire as they would have done in those days. So some of the gold coins ended up in the socks or the stockings that were by the fire. Eventually, it was found out that it was Nicholas who had done this, um, but the, the, the three girls were, were saved. And so Nicholas is the patron saint of children, of, of sailors, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and also of prostitutes as well, um, because of his connection with saving these, these three young ladies. The gold coins or the three, the three packages of gold coins uh, also led him to become the patron saint of pawnbrokers. And the traditional sign for a pawnbroker's shop to this day is, is three gold balls hanging outside on the sign. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the, the three gold coins of, of Nicholas thrown down the chimney. I did not um, know because, that. I didn't yeah, know that. Pawn, yeah. Pawnbrokers were the refuge of the poor originally. That was the idea behind them, that it was a way of getting a loan without interest. Mm-hmm. Um, sadly, that didn't last too long, but that was the, that was the way that the, the pawn the, the pawnbroking industry became connected with Nicholas. Uh, he's also one of the, the few saints that has the title Thaumaturge, which, which means wonder worker. Uh, we speak of particular saints as having, you know, propensities for healing particular illnesses or, or you know, patronages of, of particular problems. But the Thaumaturges, uh, the, the wonder workers, are, are sort of universal patrons and can be appealed to for all problems and all difficulties at all times. So Nicholas is, is known for, among other wonders, you know, saving people from poisoning, um, uh, managing to, to rescue some people who'd been condemned to death, and, and particularly, I suppose, his connection with children. At a time when there was a tremendous famine in the land, the story was that uh, with the shortage of food, um, people were beginning to fall into cannibalism. And on one occasion, he uh, stopped at a butcher's where he had the intuition that the meat that was being sold wasn't the pork that the butcher was claiming it to be, but was actually children that, that had been murdered and he was using their flesh uh, to um, to pass off as pork. Nicholas is supposed to have blessed the pork joints whereupon they, they leapt up as three, three children. Um, and so again, his patronage of, of children and his, his reputation for wonder working, uh, for miracle working, were very firmly established within that. The, the sailor and the sea stuff comes about because a number of sailors actually stole his bones after he had died. Um, the bones were resting in, in Myra in Turkey and th- these particular uh, sailors wanting to, to do something for their own, their own place, Bari, uh, an, an island off the Italian coast. The bones were robbed by these sailors mm-hmm. uh, who decided they were going to bring them home to the island of Bari. But when they opened the tomb, they discovered that the bones were leaking what's called uh, manna, which is a kind of a sweet smelling perfumed substance, sometimes also called myrrh as well. Um, Not to be confused with the the myrrh of of, uh, gold, frankincense and myrrh, but Mm -hmm. a kind of a perfumed ointment that comes off occasionally some of the bones of the saints. And that to this day is still collected from the tomb of Nicholas. Oh, wow. um, And and is used in in kind of uh, healing services and healing ceremonies within the, the Orthodox tradition. So yeah, he continues to be extremely active. And um, uh, the Feast of St. Nicholas was, was a very, very important Christmas day. Uh, it also tended to coincide, particularly in the UK, with the celebration of the boy bishop. So on St. Nicholas's day, uh, in the monastic schools and the cathedral schools, a boy would be elected bishop, in inverted commas. He wasn't ordained or anything like that, but he was, he was sort of given the title and dressed as a bishop. And there was a kind of a, um, a chaos element to it, a feast of fools, 
whereby whatever orders the bishop, the, the boy bishop made had to be filled, at least for that day. It was kind of a way of, I suppose, releasing the, the stresses and strains of the uh, the scholastic year, a kind of a, sure. an explosion of, of energy, a sort of a rag week as, as such. And yeah, there were various sort of celebrations for, for Nicholas. So to this day, in, in many towns and cities around uh, Europe and, and in, in, uh, in the UK and in, in Ireland, the, the arrival of St. Nicholas into the church or into the cathedral on um, St. Nicholas Day is, is a big celebration. Uh, he usually comes in by, by, by boat and, and is dressed in the insignia of the bishop. And one thing I'd like to puncture forever, if at all possible, is this kind of myth out there that sort of Coca-Cola invented Santa Claus, right? Um, particularly in terms of giving him his, his red and white. The oldest icons of St. Nicholas show him in the vestments of a bishop in red and white. So he has had the beard and the red and white uh, from, from the beginning as a good patriarch and a good wonder worker. But to this day, he's seen very much as one of the advocates of the poor and one of the patrons of the Christmas tide celebrations, particularly because of his association with children uh, and uh, the various Father Christmas elements and the idea of him coming on Christmas Eve eventually was a sort of a combination that took place in the UK, particularly with a, a sort of a more mythical Father Christmas figure. And they kind of come together. And as, as you've shown um, numerous times in, in Strange Familiars, the the figure of the kind of um, Christmas wild man is also uh, woven into the myth there. Right. Uh, with, with Nicholas arriving, you know, and, and having the kind of judgmental aspect, the idea of punishing the bad and, and rewarding the good. So without throwing us, hopefully, too far off track, I just have a question that, that just relates to, to your general faith and how you kind of see things. For The story that you told, for instance, of St. Nicholas blessing the pieces parts from the butcher yeah. and, and them springing up as, as whole children one of my favorite stories is uh saint john of damascus who has his hand removed at one point i, th- I if mm. i'm remembering co- correctly i think for for making uh icons i think yes. yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 and he prays to mary and his hand is restored mm. so as a person of faith and as, as a person who you know obviously you're you're living within your faith do you see these stories as literal or do you see them, you know, more symbolically or somewhere in between or, you know, what's your read on them? Well, my read is anything is possible. That's the first thing. And I think any listener to Strange Familiars by now would also say anything is possible um, <laughs> at, at, at this point. But in terms of, I suppose, coming at it from the faith perspective, I think you have to look at the inner meaning of the story first. OK. Um, so so Nicholas was a historical person. We know that he existed. We have the records of him, you know, as a bishop. And, and the various inactions uh, that, 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 he, that he performed towards charity and towards goodness and kindness. And he was certainly known as a miracle worker and as a healer in his life. I would say that over the kind of medieval period, particularly, some of the, the, the legends became, um, you know, they, they were sort of a, a kind of a mythologizing or a dramatizing of the truth behind it. So whether there were there were, you know, pieces of, of a salted ham that suddenly got up and became a child, I don't know. And I highly suspect um, that that did not actually happen. But in terms of Nicholas as a bishop um, preaching against cannibalism and against the persecution of children, we know that that took place, that that was absolutely certain. Right. You know, and in terms of his, as I say, his work and miracles of, of basic healing. Yeah, absolutely. That took place. But. If you're asking me, is it possible that that happened as is recorded or as is mentioned in the legends, I'm perfectly happy to say it's possible. 
But once you say it's possible, you're also including in, I don't know other sure. than that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I, and I like, I mean, I, again, just to, to take it back to the St. John of Damascus story, I mean, the symbolism mm-hmm. there is, is baked into the story. In a certain of way. course. He, yeah. ar- he yeah. argued convincingly uh, for, this is in the Middle East where uh, I think they were under the rule of some, uh, some form of Islamic rule. And they, they were basically saying, no, you can't have these, these icons. And apparently he, he argued convincingly for, you know, the Christian faith to be allowed to have the icons essentially un, under this rule and uh, convinced whoever was in charge there that, that it was okay, you know, within, mm-hmm. within the scope of the Christian faith. So obviously there's, there's a heavy symbolism to that story. Exactly. And, and I think our, our sort of earlier ancestors would have understood the, the, the fact that they were they were listening to stories that had to be heard at, at, at different levels. You know, mm-hmm. I think sometimes we, we we sort of presume that they were, you know, extremely credulous and were listening to, to these things and, and, and taking them in, you know, verbatim. But in actual fact, they had a very subtle understanding of the symbolism that was being that was being presented in the midst of all of these things. And oftentimes the, the kind of more um, extraordinary elements, particularly with Nicholas, because Nicholas is associated with a lot of the Christmas mystery plays, um, they would have understood that sort of time and events were being conflated and being dramatized, you know. Uh, in, in the same way, nowadays, you, you sit down and you watch, you know, what is in inverted commas, a, 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 an historical drama. And then you read all of the disclaimers at the end, you know, uh, as to events being telescoped and various characters being being merged into one so as to make it a better drama mm-hmm. in exactly the same way these stories and, and the kind of hagiographical stories had their own their own code and their own symbolism that those who were very familiar with them would have been perfectly well able to to read and to understand that kind of steps us right into the next which i'm i'm very interested in the the mystical understanding of christmas as an eternal event yeah. So at the moment we're in, as Christians, we're in, we're in the season of Advent, um, and, and Advent is that, that sort of you know li- little Lent or little little sort of penitential time as a way of sort of um, readying ourselves for the the event of of Christmas. And Advent is seen in a kind of a mystical understanding as having sort of celebrating three three arrivals or three comings of Christ. We speak of the coming of Christ in history. In other words, if we were able to, to travel in time, we could go back to a particular moment in time when, you know, the events as recorded in the Gospels took place. You know, mm-hmm. you could go back and actually meet the, the, the these historical personages. We also look at, at look forward to the coming of, of Christ at the at the end of time, the kind of apocalypse, if you like, the end the, the end of all things, when when God will be all in all. But there's a third moment, a third coming, which is the idea of the present moment as being an encounter with the divine. And because God is eternal or beyond time within the Judeo-Christian understanding of things, it means that, that each succeeding moment is uh, of chronological time is held within the context of eternity. And so in that sense, Christmas is happening now in this moment if we were only attuned to it fully and completely. And so each Christian in the mystical understanding of Christianity is to become a place or a locus of the incarnation, that the incarnation take, has taken place once for all time in history, but continues to unfold in the opening of our hearts towards compassion, towards the divine, and in what the early Christians called the transformation of the self into as near an approximation to God as it's possible to become while still remaining a human being. And the old term for that was theosis. 
this was the divinization of humanity in the Christian understanding of it, which wasn't a getting lost or dissolving in God, but was a participation in the inner life of God. And that was what, from the very earliest days of Christianity, was understood as being the goal of the Christian faith. It wasn't just to be a good moral person, but the morality, the goodness evolved from an encounter with the divine that slowly saw a transformation or a raising of the person to being as, as alike to God as it's possible for us to be. Um, St. Augustine, the great sort of early father of the church, put it beautifully. He says, um, divine humanity has come close to human beings by means of what is closest to us, in effect, our own bodily reality. So the incarnation in that sense is seen as the second person of the Trinity, uh, the logos, the, the, the creative aspect of the divine, descending into our humanity so as to raise our humanity with us, with, with him. And in that sense, the incarnation, the events of Christmas are the fusion forever of the divine life with the human life in all of its individual expressions, each of us. So in that sense, it's possible for me to find Christmas in this moment and to actually allow it to take place. And so the early Christian monastics read the nativity narratives, not just as a description of something that happened a long time ago, but as a mystical text that would allow one to actually enter into this mystery here and now. So stop me if I'm going on too long, but to give you an example of that, we have the, the, you know, the, the very typical image of the shepherds on the hills receiving the message of the angels and, and rushing to adore the Christ. Yes. And that's fine. That's, that's a historical moment. It's a description of an event. But in the mystical understanding of that, the shepherd is the person who is trying to still themselves to come into the mystery of stillness and into the appreciation of the divine uh, through vigiling, through being awake, agripna. Uh, awake was the, the Greek understanding of it. We, we call it, I suppose, mindfulness or awareness or, or, or contemplative vigiling. The sheep, in that sense, the guarding of the sheep is the guarding of the thoughts. The sheep were very often seen as an image of the thoughts because they get lost and they go everywhere and they need to, to learn to trust the shepherd, to trust the one who's actually guarding them and guiding them. And, and so when there is enough experience of stillness, the mind is raised then to an encounter with the angelic realm. And the angelic realm gives the, the, the message that the Christ is being born, the, 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 the Christ is being born in you in this moment. And so the answer to that then is to go to the place of the Christ being born, our own heart, our own inner room, our own, our own soul, and there to allow the Christ be born. So that the message then of peace and goodwill to all is the, the message that becomes the heart message of our own individual life. And that's just one image that, that's used within it. But effectively, the nativity, uh, as well as the rest of the Gospels, but the nativity narratives become a map for that theotic um, transformation of the inner self so that the incarnation can take place in my present moment, just as it took place all of those years ago that the Christ who became incarnate in Bethlehem can also be present in and through me, um, through the grace of mercy and love and compassion being poured out in my particular life. Certainly a easy example to apply, you know, the quite literally living faith, you know. Um, yeah, 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 absolutely. And you see, I think sometimes we, we forget, you know, and, and again, if... <laughs> I'm always wary of, of, of going too, too deeply into, into the sort of the theological, but, but effectively, 
we speak of time as existing in, in two different ways within the, the Christian mystical tradition. There is chronological time, you know, um, the, the timeline of my own life. You know, I began in, me personally began in 1974 and I will go on until whatever year I finish, whenever that is. Hopefully not, not, not too soon, but you never know. Um, so that, that goes on and that's day by day, moment by moment. It could be ticked off on a calendar. But as well as chronological time, we speak of chirotic time as well, the time of kairos. And that's the time where, of, of encountering eternity in the now. We often think of eternity as being sort of a, a chronological timeline that has no end. And that's not what eternity is, is at all. Eternity is the unfolding and the opening of the present moment in all of its depth dimension completely. And it's out of that chirotic time that chronological time is, is actually exists and is held in being. So if I want to encounter the divine, whatever I consider that to be, if I want to en encounter, just even call it simply the transcendent dimension of life, I'm moving from a chronological understanding to a chirotic understanding and to an inner understanding of, of recognizing that the present moment is interpenetrated and held in being by the divine, by the transcendent ground of being, whatever you want to call that. Obviously, within the Judeo-Christian tradition, we, we call that God, but whatever you want to call that, the ultimate, as the Buddhists would say, for example, this ultimate dimension of life from which everything arises and to which everything eventually returns. So in that sense, the present moment is imbued with all of the divine mysteries, including the incarnation, including Christmas as, as such. So we always say within within our own tradition, within the Franciscan tradition, that Christmas isn't, you know, very often people will talk about, I'm not, I'm not feeling Christmas yet, or I need to feel Christmassy, or do you feel Christmassy? And we, we always say, Christmas isn't a feeling, it's a doing. You know, it's an actual choice to allow the incarnation to take place here and now, in me, in this moment. And that's why when we look at the crib, the nativity scene, we see all of the orders of creation present within it. You know, the plant life is there, the animals are there, human beings are there, the angels are there. All of the different levels of being are present, leading and centered around around the divine. So the crib in that sense becomes an image of the human person and all of the various levels of being within us. Once, you know, in perfect relationship with the divines, when, when it's centered on, on the birthing of the divine within ourselves. I'm struck with uh, something as you're saying this, uh, not necessarily related to Christmas, but certainly related mm. to Christ, that uh, I, I'm sometimes asked by uh, non-Catholic Christians and, and even, you know, non-Christians at all, like, why wear the crucifix? Why the crucifix? Mm. And it seems to me that what you've said uh, about this this timeless nature of the, you know, it's certainly at least the symbolism of what's happening mm. would be mm. the absolute reason behind wearing the crucifix. Absolutely, and and that the crucifix goes goes even even a little more deeper deeply into that because the, the early some of the early fathers saw in the shape of the cross like they asked the question why the cross like if we if we consider the divine to be ultimate and all powerful and, and omniscient and omnipotent like why out of all the possible ways of incarnating and and even dying why was the cross chosen and one of the things they concentrated on was the shape of the cross and they said simply the shape of the cross is to remind us that there is a horizontal axis to our life which is the chronological horizontal axis of life you know the timeline we all learn as kids to draw a timeline of things but this is interpenetrated by the and transcended by the the vertical dimension of the divine 
And so essentially, as human beings, we are, we are living in the cross at every moment, but we have to become aware of it. We have to recognize that the, the horizontal dimension, the dimension of purposeful activity, the dimension of the day-to-day -day life, has within it the possibility of encountering the eternal and the infinite, as long as I'm open to the awareness of that. And that was one of the reasons, they said, that the cross as shape was chosen, as a reminder to us that we are, as one of my professors used to say, a psychobiological entity living an eternal existence in the here and now. Hmm. Um, so that's, that's you know, what we're, what we're attempting to do. And even, you know, to take it into the strange familiars territory, when we encounter the other, whatever you want to make of that or wherever you want to see it's coming from, in that sense is a moment when our chronos encounters some form of kairos, some form of, of other dimension of being. I was speaking specifically of the crucifix versus the mm. cross, uh, where we have mm. the you know the corpus is on yes. is yeah, on the cross, yeah. and and that the symbolic representation. Well, the, of, the corpus in in that sense reminds us that they, they would go further and and say that it reminds us it happened, right? You know, that right, that it yeah. was it was a historical moment of eternal significance. Right. That's the the sort of mystical, you know. Yeah. The part of it that I was that I was trying to get to that, that it just it hit me as you were, as you were describing Christmas you know it's like mm -hmm. okay so this applies not just to the Christmas story but when you look at these other stories symbolically you can see yeah. you can see that it you know you can kind of explode it out from there you know yeah I mean to take it away even from from simply the Christian narrative and, and to go back even to the Old Testament the, the 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 most profound expression of this is in the narrative of the famous burning bush story with Moses where Moses encounters the, the divine and has this again this transcendent moment of going beyond the senses signified by you know taking off the sandals which which was traditionally seen as a symbol of moving beyond the sensory life entering into this encounter with the divine where he seeks the name of, of the divine and, and the name is given in, in, in revelation, a name so sacred that our you know, Jewish brothers and sisters won't even pronounce it aloud. But the name having a dynamic significance of being or of amnes, and one can even go so far, so far as to translate it simply as nowness, that the inner life of God or the inner, the inner divine name is, is an expression of this eternity in the in the present moment and that's why they say that the image of the burning bush the, the bush that was on fire but was not being consumed was given because it's a reminder that in each moment everything that exists is held in this eternal light or eternal fire of beingness but isn't is is never actually consumed because it lives always within the eternity of the divine important lessons in seeing these stories symbolically as well as, you know, historically. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. And one doesn't exclude the other. I think that's one of the important things. You know, if we go into the, that whole idea of myth and story and, you know, so beloved of the kind of conversations normally had here, you know, the whole idea of the imaginal, sure. um, yeah. that the imaginal is at one and the same time perfectly historical and real. And at the same time has this kind of archetypal significance by which people of all times and places can tap into the into the lessons of the of these things in that sense when someone has an imaginal encounter it is entirely real uh, but uh, is, is a quality or has a quality of reality that we don't normally find in, in the chronological but which we do find in the chirotic which which as i said transcends or interpenetrates the the chronological yes that's very strange familiar territory right there yeah i think people 
you know, maybe entering into those moments or, or like, well, like you've said before, maybe these, these things are using similar channels to come through, mm. but in that sort of timeless sense or the, the missing time or, you know, whatever these encounters people are having with, with these grays and so forth, where they feel mm. like they're, they're outside of time. It's, you know, it's a very similar kind of uh, description. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I mean, it's extraordinary how often the same circumstances or the same channels or the same sensory experiences even happen, though the content might be different to each encounter. Yes. We have a forthcoming show somewhere down the line. We're going to get into a show on Marian Visions, and, and I've been you know reading quite a bit <laughs> on them. And uh, the UFO similarities are quite amazing in, in many of these. Sure. These, yeah. Yeah. yeah, huge, absolutely. Very, very yeah, similar yeah, yeah. elements. Well, stepping into more strange familiars territory, we can talk about apparitions of the Holy Family and, and the Christ Child. Yeah, so I, I suppose, again, because of that eternal aspect of, and, and the idea of kind of Christmas being sort of outside of time, but inside of time at, at the same time, there was always the tradition, particularly in the Celtic countries, that in the Christmas season, one had to be very, very careful in looking after the poor, particularly if strangers called to the door because it was felt that when when the Holy Family were, were looking for a place to stay, they didn't just um, wander around the town of Bethlehem, but actually wandered through time. Mm. And so you have again and again legends and stories of, you know, unusual guests turning up on Christmas Eve that through sign or symbol slowly reveal themselves to be, you know, um, Joseph seeking assistance for Mary or, you know, Mary and the child looking for a place to stay or even a child turning up on the doorstep by themselves looking for their parents or looking for home or looking for for a place to a place to stay and it was so much so it was very very conscious very strongly conscious of this in the irish tradition so much so that the, the the doors were always left open on christmas eve night when the family went to bed there was always a fire left the fire wasn't banked the fire was left in the hearth and um, food was left on the table and the idea was that if any stranger came by there would be a welcome and over time, that blurs, you know, you, you have stories of, of angels, of the Holy Family and, and of the fairies as well. Because one of the big things that happened with, with the Fae, at least in the Irish understanding and the Scottish understanding, was there was a kind of a, that Christmas was a sad event for them because they felt excluded from it, that, that the incarnation hadn't actually happened for them yet. And so there was the understanding that they would be saved one day, but not at this time. Ah. Uh, and so the space was left open to welcome them as well so that they could warm themselves and have a, a little of a little comfort, a little of the Christmas celebration when Christmas was going on. It was also a time that the ancestors were supposed to visit as well. I think we talked last year about the, 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 the customs in Ireland of, of sort of putting a lamp in the window as well yes. as, as a yes. sign that the Holy Family would be welcome when they called. Now, that had two significances, which was the, the, the mystical one of the Holy Family being welcome, but also um, it often indicated a house where Christmas Mass was being celebrated during the, the penal times, the persecution times of, of Catholics. And so there is some folkloric evidence to say that the, the custom actually arose to indicate where the Mass was, but the story of it being used to attract the Holy Family or to say that they were welcome was what was put out to the Protestant authorities so that they wouldn't understand what was going on. But anyway, that's, that's, a, that's a kind of a historical question nobody's really sure of, but the custom is certainly there, that the lamp is lit and the window has its, its Christmas candle in for 12 nights, just in case when they're passing through time, they would be looking for somewhere to shelter. And that would kind of lead us right into the Christmas decorations, because we still put candles in the window today, even here. <laughs> 
Yeah, so so the whole the whole decorating thing is, is is fascinating, you know. Obviously, there are elements borrowed back and forth from other traditions, you know, from the kind of Yuletide celebrations that were there even in even in um, pre-Christian times, and that have sort of returned to some extent. But the kind of code or the language of decorations is something that we've often forgotten about or, or have lost along the way. So. The 16th of December was the big day. This was the day of what they called the greening. So if, if we try and think back to, you know, times before, you know, greenhouses and forced planting and, and being able to transport flowers across the face of the earth very easily. From once the harvest was over, the churches were quite bare. Uh, there were no flowers. There was no um, greenery out there, really. And so the stones, particularly of the monasteries and the cloisters, were decorated on the 16th of December with evergreen branches and uh, a number of different different kinds of plants that were that were brought in, including things like holly, ivy, mistletoe, etc. All of these were brought in as a reminder that the life, the actual green life, the greening, because Christ was seen as the greening of all of creation, the new life, the new spring that came with the incarnation, that this greening was was present within the the church and was held safe there over the the winter season. So uh, from that really arose the custom of, of even the Christmas tree. They started off, as far as we know, about a thousand years ago, around about the year one, uh, a thousand. Uh, and they started off as what were known as paradise trees. Um, so these were supposed to be images of the tree of paradise, the tree of life. And they were usually present outside the churches, first of all, and decorated with kind of foods and, and symbols of the Christian journey and some of the kind of scriptural events that are there. And they would be part of the mystery plays because the play, the, the mystery play that was most common in the Christmas season was the play of, of creation and the promise of the coming of the Messiah, the sort of the fall of Adam and Eve, the promise of the coming of the Messiah. And eventually you would have part, bits and pieces of the Christmas story acted out as well in front of the churches. Eventually those trees were, were kind of brought inside. For a while there was, a, there was even a custom of the tree being brought out and set on fire. I was going to bring up, I found a wonderful bit of folklore from West Virginia mm-hmm. of people lighting a tree on fire on Christmas and, and they would roll it down the hill, they said. Every Christmas, mm. they would light this tree and, and kind of roll it you know, down the hill. Now, that's really interesting because that was present within the sort of late Middle Ages in Europe. And there were there were actual groups and kind of um, uh, sort of semi-official groups whose job was to was to set fire to the tree. And like that, they would have races with the tree or roll it around the place or whatever. Wow. They, they gave all kinds of images for it. I personally, I, I really think it was just, you know, a party <laughs> more, yeah, more than yeah. anything else. Yeah. You know, in the middle of the winter, what do you do when you're outside? Well, you, you set something on fire, you know, Um and and that's that's kind of what they did with it. The fact that that turns up in in the states is really interesting. But one of the the most important elements, I suppose, with regard to the Christmas tree was was the kind of popularization of lights on the tree, you know, candles and lights and lamps and things like that. And the idea again being that the tree represented in some way the greening that that Christ brings as far back as. St. Hildegard of Bingen was one of the great uh, devotees of the, the greening. Um, yes. St. Ambrose, one of the saints of December, is also one of one of the, the saints who speaks of that, that Christ brings the new, the greening to, to a wintered world, a sin-wintered world. Hildegard made um, her own uh, Latin word up, Veritas, I believe. She did. Yeah. She did indeed. Yes. Yeah. The philosophy of the greening. Yeah. yeah. Some yeah. beautiful music created around it as well. Yeah. Um, some of her chant is still out there for people to listen to. But uh, it was Martin Luther, as far as we're aware, who, who first came up with the idea of actually putting lights in the trees. And again, the legend 
take it for what you will, is that he was on a preaching journey and noticed the beauty of the stars shining through the branches of fir trees and uh, wanted to recreate that with the with the Christmas tree and so had candles attached to it. And eventually, of course, we have our Christmas lights, our fairy lights, etc. along the way. But hearkening back to, to a recent episode of Strange Familiars, it was uh, the famous Queen Charlotte of the UK, of, wow. of, of Great Britain, who was the first to bring the Germanic custom of the fir tree inside your house, in, in your living room as such, with presents underneath it. And when that got out, a lot of the royal court began to do the same, and it became a, a strong custom in, in, in Britain from then on. That's really where the kind of domestic Christmas tree comes from to this day. Along with other decorations, I mean, things like the, the, the tinsel, for example, has a very old legend, which is that, that there was someone who was so poor that they couldn't afford to decorate their tree with the food items that were usually used, you know, oranges and fruits and dried popcorn and things like that. And so the story is that a spider took pity on them and wove beautiful webs all over the tree. So much so that, that in some countries to this day, your Christmas tree is incomplete unless you have a decorative spider somewhere in the branches as well. Uh. And the spider, of course, is the, you know, the trickster and the dreamer and is one of the oldest images of the divine as well. Even in the Jewish tradition, one of the images for God was the spider who's, who spins creation from himself, you know. But the tinsel was the idea that in some places an angel, in some places it's St. Nicholas passes by and sees the beautiful job that the spider has done and gives a special blessing so that the webs turn to silver and gold and the, the poor person is their Christmas is saved because they now have this beautiful solid gold thread and silver thread uh, there present. The star, I suppose, is self-explanatory, the Christmas star on top of the tree or the Christmas angel or sometimes referred to as, as the fairy. But the original ornament for the very top of the tree was actually an image of the Christ child, the Chris Kindle. And that was something that was used right up to the sort of the 1800s or so before the, the kind of angel took over. In many Catholic and latterly Orthodox celebrations that the bottom of the tree is not just presents but there would be a, a nativity scene a crash or a crib scene at, at the bottom of it as well so that's the, that's the christmas tree but it, the christmas tree is very much related to the whole custom of the yule log and i suppose nowadays that's seen as being something from the the, the more sort of pagan or neo-pagan tradition but it, it seems to have been something that was borrowed by one or other traditions at different times you know across from each other Certainly, it was a really beautiful symbol of new life again, the idea that the whole tree was brought in and burned over the 12 nights of Christmas, that it had to be lit from the stock of the old tree from the previous year. The root of the tree was hidden in the thatched roof and was supposed to protect against lightning and storms for the year ahead. And in some places, it was connected with the shepherds in, in the Bethlehem tradition because it was believed that they brought firewood with them as a gift to the Holy Family so that they could stay warm during the Christmas night as well. So there's all of these these wonderful connections along the way. And there was even the practices of burning different chemicals on top of the Yule log, depending on which night it was. There was a different color for each night. So salt would be spread over the log to make it burn yellow and copper would be spread over to make it burn blue in honor of the Blessed Virgin and all of these these kinds of, of, of ideas along the way. So all of our Christmas decorations, I think, have a lot of meaning to them that maybe we just don't notice or know anymore. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, my favourite one is actually the fact of, of bringing ivy into the house. Ivy was usually brought in after the 16th of December and was it was placed over the, the main fireplace. And that was supposed to protect the house from, from fire, but also to protect the house from the fae, from fairies. 
because the humility of the ivy was seen as, as the kind of the sort of the servant of the other trees because it clothes the, the trees in the winter and, and remains green and, and reminds them of their green. Uh, so the ivy was seen as something that was very lucky and very blessed and, and something that, that would keep harm and danger and, and um, the possibility of changelings, etc. away from the house for the coming year. In researching Where the Footprints then, I came across some mentions of, and I believe it was from medieval times, of Christmas trees being hung upside down. Hmm. Yeah. And and I wonder if that connects to when you were saying they put the roots of the the Yule log in the -hmm. the roof. I wonder if that's a a similar uh, reason for that. Yeah, there were all kinds of customs. I mean, they they hung them upside down. They hung them um, horizontally from the ceiling as well and hung hung lights from them then, uh, these kind of tapered candles and fat candles and things like that so before we got to our tree in a pot you know uh, kind of kind of vertically there were all kinds of of ways of of doing this and part of that i think was also the idea of the christmas in some way was seen as an inversion of the natural order it was kind of a way of of coming to it was sort of almost a chaotically graced place and the chaos of it sort of uprooted a very um, solid and and sometimes quite dour social order so much so that when the Protestant Reformation came, there was a lot of debate as to as to what what of Christmas should be even be kept, um, because it was seen as as being very very chaotic. We know, for example, Cromwell famously banned Christmas for a number of years in the UK. So yeah, th- this idea that that in some way the power of the Christmas tree or the power of the green branch coming into the house was a real reminder of of kind of the, the natural. Uh, exuberance of life and greening, which would also have included the natural exuberance of of things like sexuality as well. So Christmas very often and a lot of the the early celebrations had this idea of gender reversal as well being part of it, that men would dress as women and women would dress as men in in, in the kind of customs of the sort of um, uh, the mummers and the the dancers and all of that kind of idea as well. There was a, a real experience of sort of social convention being put to one side for a while as the the eternal dimension kind of became present. A lot of mumming traditions surround Christmas, absolutely. We talked about them before in, mm. in, in episodes past. Did you say there was a specific date for the Feast of the Greening? The 16th of December. 16th of December. Okay. Yeah, which is halfway through the Advent season. The Advent season sort of turns on, on the 16th from a kind of a more, at, at the early start of Advent, the sort of meditation is on the kind of cosmic significance of the longing for the Christ down through the ages. And from the 16th on, the, the scriptures and the church services turn to the actual telling of the, the story of the nativity. So right at the 16th, the, the green comes into the house or into the into the into the churches then yeah traditionally i was trying to connect it to the green knight story oh well that's mm-hmm. <laughs> that's possible too it's uh, certainly as a as a symbol of the nature and and as kind of sanctified nature yeah 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 mm-hmm. uh, tolkien would have had, had a lot to say on on the green knight and 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 why green was chosen particularly yeah, yeah. That he was yeah. kind of the spirit of the wild wood you know coming back and demanding the challenge of the knights was was to to sort of to live with the wild and to allow the wild to breathe again I, I believe he comes, depending on what you read, I think he comes on Christmas, but I think it's one of those, like, one of the 12 days of Christmas, the Green Knight mm. comes. I don't necessarily yeah. think he comes right on Christmas Day. Well, see, that's the other thing. We we speak of the 12 days of Christmas, but in effect, from the kind of uh, eternal idea, that the 12 days are one day. So a day, the old idea of a day, was a period of divine action. 
That's why we speak of creation as taking place in seven days. We're not talking about 24 hours. We're talking about seven periods of divine action. And uh, well, sorry, six periods of action and one period of inaction of, of rest. And so the, the, the 12 days as such are seen as, you know, entering into the into the actual experience of Christmas for those 12 days, that it's one great day, one great act in, in that moment. So anything that happens within those 12 days is effectively happening, you know, during the Christmas moment. Ah, yeah. And that would be why they would talk about these feasts going on for days and days at a time. There was no end to the feast. The Christmas absolutely. Feast. Yeah. Absolutely. It, all, it, was, it was the same day in, day out for those ah, 12 days. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. So we talked about the manger and the animals being there. So mm-hmm. we have some legends of birds and, and other beasts like Christmas. Oh, there's all kinds of, yeah, all kinds of legends and stories about who was there and who wasn't there. I suppose the first thing is, is, is to say that the, traditionally the only witness to the actual birth of Christ were the animals. The animal order is the one who received the great privilege of witnessing the birth. Traditionally, Joseph is, is sent off to, to get supplies for the birth and to find a midwife. The midwife, again, with this telescoping of eternity and time, uh, is very often seen within the legends, not within scriptures themselves, but within the legends around Christmas. The midwife turns out to be Eve, who travels through time so as to deliver Christ to be the, the midwife to Mary at that moment. Poetry in that. Yeah, yeah beautiful poetry in it, you know, yeah. and there's, there's a wonderful, wonderful image from the Middle Ages. It's kind of becoming more present again now, but it's a famous one that would have been seen as part of the mystery plays called The Consolation of Eve. And it's a famous uh, image of the pregnant Eve meeting the pregnant Mary and Mary consoling Eve that, that everything will be will be healed again, um, you know, when she as a daughter of Eve arrives. But, yeah, the, the animal order is, is very important within that. So, you know, traditionally, when you ask people about the crib scene or the, or the manger scene, they immediately think of the donkey and the ox. Now, in the actual scripture of the nativity, there's no mention of any animal other than the sheep with the shepherds. The donkey and the ox come about because, um, well, when St. Francis created the, the, the first crib uh, in 1223, he took the donkey and the ox um, because they had been seen in kind of iconography from, from the very beginning. Because in one of the prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, we're told that the ox and the ass will recognize their, their Lord and their master. And so traditionally, symbolically, the ox being the tame animal was seen as the Jewish people who were under the covenant um, who were under the rule of God, and the donkey being the awkward one was seen as the, the pagan, the representation of the, of the pagan peoples who were yet to hear uh, the message of the, of the gospel being preached to them. So those two animals represent the sort of the two halves of humanity, according to the, to the Jewish disposition. And then you have all of these other stories that come in. We have the story of the, the you know, the spider that, that spins its web so as to create a blanket for the, for the Christ child. We have the robin getting his red breast because um, he gets too near the fire trying to, to warm the child who's there. We have, the, you know, that the, 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 uh, the wren was supposed to have plucked its own breast so as to drop feathers into the, uh, into the manger to create a, a, a pillow for the Christ child. But again, in that telescoping of, of events, you have this idea that because some of the animals and birds were there, all of the animal world was liberated in that moment of birth of the nativity and the first blessing of Christ is to the, is to the animals. Kenneth Graham, actually, the author of The Wind in the Willows, the famous children's book, has um, a beautiful sort of moment in that book where he has the animals singing their own carol, their own Christmas carol. 
which continually refers to the fact that the animals were the first to cry Noel and that this had been forgotten about by, by human beings. So there's this, this wonderful theme all the way through Christian literature um, that ever before humanity comes to recognize Christ, the animals do first and foremost. That's quite wonderful. And within the Irish tradition, there's there's a, a long tradition of the fact that the animals have to be treated extremely well for the 12 days of Christmas, that they're allowed to rest, that they receive extra food. And particularly on, on Christmas Eve, uh, if one has the, the ability to kind of stay up and be present at the stroke of midnight, it's believed that at that moment, just for a few short moments, the curse of Adam, which is that we cannot speak to the animals anymore, is lifted and we, we are able to communicate with the, with the wild, with the animal world perfectly in that moment. Some of those stories have made it into local folklore here. People there you go. hearing animals talk on, on Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Usually they're talking about whoever it is is listening to them. So, you know, that's <laughs> always the thing. They say, be careful because you might actually hear some truth. <laughs> <laughs> How to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Well, before we get into Christmas carols, do you have a favorite Christmas carol yourself? Oh, uh, my goodness. My favorite one is, is it's probably slightly lesser known. It's, it's the Basque carol, the, the Angel Gabriel, um, is, is one that I, that I absolutely love. It has a, a beautiful description of, of the angel descending to speak to Mary. And so it's more an Annunciation carol, but, but it, it, it's often sung during the Advent lessons or the Christmas lessons. Yeah, yeah, it's a very, very nice piece. I'll have to look that up. Uh, we can get into the meaning behind some of these Christmas carols. Sure. Well, I suppose, I mean, you as, as musician and as, as folklorist and folk musician, you know, are far better able to define carol as opposed to hymn. But I suppose we understand it as being, you know, that the carols were, were sort of the popular, the popular songs of the people. Generally, you know, folk airs were, were kind of appropriated to these. They usually had much more of a kind of a legendary focus, 
rather than necessarily a, a kind of a very clear descriptive theological statement that you would find in a hymn per se. Mm-hmm. And they were sung uh, not just in the churches, but in the homes and on the streets. Um, the, the, you know, it was part and parcel of Christmas and not just Christmas, but all of the high liturgical feasts would have had their carols, their, their, their folk kind of folk religious songs um, that were part and parcel of, of the traditions of the particular feasts. And very often they were they were quite symbolic in meaning. I mean, one of the oldest ones is I saw three ships come sailing in, yeah. um, uh, which is is uh, actually believed to be about the moment that the, the bodies, the relics of the three wise men, Gaspar, Melchior and Balthazar, were delivered from from Constantinople just before it fell and were brought to um, to Cologne, where the, where the tomb, the tomb of the three wise men still is. So the three ships represent the three, the three wise men coming in. But there's also further levels of symbolism that the three ships might represent, you know, uh, the three theological virtues of faith, hope and charity as well. Um, this idea that, that on Christmas morning, uh, these arrive in, you know, and the bells ring out because now it's possible to live the life of faith and hope and love properly or fully. So they can be they can be brought on, on you know, beautiful symbolic journeys. One of the oldest ones in the, in the UK would be the holly and the ivy. And uh, I'm not sure if you're, do you know that one, the Holly yes. and the Ivy? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's one that, that's fairly ubiquitous and present, but it, it has this beautiful, beautiful natural imagery of the, the symbolism present in each of the plants, the, the, the Holly being seen as representing the, the suffering of Christ, the Ivy, the humility of the incarnation, and especially of the Blessed Virgin. But what most people don't know is that it was, there was a kind of a folk belief that the Holly was the male plant and the Ivy was the female plant. Um, and so they represent the, the coming together of the masculine and the feminine uh, in the incarnation as well, that both sides are, are sort of saved, raised, enlightened, illumined, etc. by the, the, coming of the, of the coming of Christ. Probably the one that has an awful lot of symbolism put on it, but whether that symbolism is actually there from the beginning is, is the famous 12 days of Christmas. You know, th- there were all of these kind of symbolic um, catechetical songs, often called recusant songs, which kind of codified catechisms. So people could sing these with, with sort of abandon during times of persecution, and yet they were sort of meant to pass on the meaning of the faith. Now, there is very little evidence that the 12 days of Christmas actually had that from the beginning. A lot of people think now that it was probably just a children's memory game you know, trying to remember each verse and sort of sing back what, what, what each, each uh, element had. But if you do look at it, the medieval symbolism is very clearly present in it of the various elements of the faith. So, for example, you have the, the partridge in the pear tree is supposed to represent Christ on the cross. Um, the partridge was supposed to sacrifice itself for its young in the medieval sort of bestiary understanding. In some translations, it's a peacock in a pear tree. And uh, the peacock, again, was supposed to be a symbol of Christ and resurrection. The peacock was supposed to be able to come back from the dead if given given enough time. Probably a confusion with the phoenix, to be honest, mm-hmm. um, mythologically. But, you know, these things happened. The true love was supposed to be God himself sort of pouring love out, you know, giving all of these gifts. The five gold rings that everybody loves to sing at the top of their voice was <laughs> supposed to be the, um, the image of the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Bible, or possibly the five wounds of Christ. You know, the, the, the Lords of Leaping were the apostles, uh, you know, etc. Cetera, et cetera. It had all of these these kind of ideas in it. Whether or not they were there from the beginning or they were sort of imposed upon afterwards, people just really aren't sure. There's lots of arguments back and forth with regard to it. But they 
they certainly did have recousant carols, um, which were used um, particularly in the UK, uh, in, in Britain after the, the Reformation as a way of, of sort of catechizing while remaining safe, if you, if you like, not actually, um, you know, a, um, uh, falling, falling foul of, of the authorities at the time. Yeah, we talked a little bit about that for patrons on oh, yes. the yeah, house yeah, carpenter yeah. when I discussed mm. the house carpenter. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, I mean, the moment you sent me the lyrics of that, it was clear as a bell to me anyway, that that was, that was the symbolism was, was present within it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It always seemed to me, I mean, just the title of the song, you know, <laughs> just <laughs> House Carpenter seemed, seemed pretty, uh, pretty obvious. Actually, speaking of carpenters, one of the most interesting um, sort of Christmas ideas was that occasionally St. Joseph would come by and would do repairs to people's houses. Oh, um, wow. Uh, people who are poverty stricken, etc. And the most extraordinary example of that is in the States, actually. Um, there is a very famous staircase that was built for the Loretto sisters. Now, I can't remember exactly where, but if you, if you Google St. Joseph's staircase, you will find it. There is no doubt about it. The staircase exists to this day where the sisters had built a, a beautiful new church but the builder had not created a, a staircase to get them from the ground of the church to the choir loft. Um, it had just been, it was an error and, and, and was left out. And so the sisters were left with this very rickety ladder to get up to the choir loft, which in their habits, etc., was was very dangerous. So they, they decided that they would pray and they would also advertise to look for a carpenter. And, and before the ad went out, as far as I'm aware of the story, but while they were still praying, this stranger turned up and said he was a carpenter and that he would be perfectly happy to do it for them on condition that he was left completely alone in the church while he was working. So the sisters did that. This is only in about, I think, the late 1800s, early 1900s. And um, lo and behold, a beautiful, beautiful spiral staircase was created. And what's interesting is the wood is a form of cedar that's only found in the Holy Land. Huh. Uh, and the entire thing is is created on the peg and dowel system. There, there's no there's no joints, no nails, no ironwork in it at all. Most people who've who've seen it and examined it have said that it really shouldn't stay up, uh, but it is still there. And the day before he was due to be paid, the man disappeared. Oh wow! So the sisters to this day are are, are convinced that it was Saint Joseph who turned up to help them in their in their hour of need. Ah. So. Um, if you have some some house repairs needing doing, don't be afraid to to go to St. Joseph. Wonderful story, which uh, yeah. one of my leads right into one of my favorite carols, the Cherry Tree Carol, where uh, if or, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yes, the, yeah. the cherry tree bowing down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and Joseph is very angry because uh, mm -hmm. he's he says uh, Mary asked him to gather some cherries for her because she, she says, I'm pregnant. Can you get some cherries? And, and Joseph is very angry and says, uh, let the father of the baby gather the cherries. <laughs> and then the, the baby Jesus from the womb speaks up and, and uh, speaks to Joseph. Yeah. And, and the, the tree bends down, as you said. So it's, it's, it's wonderful. Again, symbolism, not, not scripture, but. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. But these, these are, these are the ways that, that, that the, um, the stories, I, I suppose, and the, and the, the truth behind the stories is, is conveyed in such, in such beautiful ways. Yeah. 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 So let's get into more Strange Familiars territory. 
and okay. talk about Christmas <laughs> ghost stories. First of all, is there a reason why? So, it, you know, in modern times, we think of the Christmas Carol, you know, Dickens hmm. ghost story. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But traditionally, Christmas really was a time for ghost stories. Oh, absolutely. Uh, going back several important. hundreds of years. Yeah. yeah. So and it goes back again to that understanding of, of sort of these very sacred times being places where, you know, the, the, the walls between the worlds become thin. Uh, and, and so um, when the eternal, when the, when the chirotic enters Kronos or, or penetrates Kronos, then um, we become very aware that the, the, the world of, of spirit, the, the world of the other, the world of, of the ancestors is, is equally as present. And so uh, the, the Christmas time was seen as a time of communing with the dead, particularly. And that, that masses and prayers and, and offerings for the dead had particular efficacy in the Christmas season over the 12 days of Christmas because Christ comes uh, to rule over the living and the dead. And indeed, as, as we, we kind of say, that there is no one dead to God because God dwells in the eternal. And, and, and so everyone is, is alive in, in that sense. So the telling of, of the Christmas ghost story is, is a very, very ancient tradition. Um, and, you know, like dark evenings and cold nights and drawing around the fire is the perfect time for it. But it was also a reminder, I think, of kind of that the winter time, especially um, from sort of the, the November on, from the month of the dead on, that, that all hallow tide moving into Advent, moving into Christmas tide, was considered a, a, a time when the dead would come and visit and they would be very present. It was also considered a very strong time for, for divination, for, for the kind of um, the signs that, were, that, were, that came through the natural world and, and even through sort of um, sanctified div divinatory practices. So, in, for example, in Ireland, there was the idea of candle gazing or fire gazing was a very important uh, idea. And people who could interpret the fire were considered extremely important people. The idea of being able to recognize who was coming and the fortunes of the of the, the house and the farm for the coming year uh, were, were very important. So the ancestors would often be invoked to bring symbols or bring images of that. And I think out of that is where the ghost stories come. A lot of similar folklore here with divination around that time. Mm. Uh, a lot of it focused on young women, you know, do, oh, yeah. do yeah, this yeah. on yeah. Christmas Eve and you'll know who your husband will be or, or something like this. Did you have the custom of the dumb cake? The, the, the dumb cake was, was a cake that had to be prepared by a young woman without anybody else touching the ingredients and without her ever speaking a word out loud. If she spoke a word out loud, the charm was broken. So it was a, a dumb cake. And when the cake was cooling, she was to take one of her knitting needles or sewing needles, because all good young ladies had their own sewing needles and knitting needles in those days. And she was to prick the, the cake as it was cooling with her own initials. Ah. And then the idea was the following morning when she would come down to the leave, the cake was to be left in the hearth. And the following morning when she would come down, she would find that in the lines of the cake was to be discerned the initials of the person she would marry. Oh, interesting. Um, but if a word was spoken while the cake was being prepared, then it wouldn't work. And in fact, could even become bad luck. <laughs> so so um, that was the dumb cake. Yeah, yeah. The mince pie end of things is an interesting one as well. So the, the mince pies, and, and again, there can be confusion. Mince just means chopped in, in that sense. It was chopped fruit and nuts. It was a spiced cake, a spiced bun. 
so the mince pies were, were a very important Christmas thing. And it was part of traditionally in Ireland and, and, and England and Wales. It was part of the offering left out for Santa Claus as well, were the mince pies as opposed to the American cookies. But uh, the mince pie was if one of those was eaten per night for the 12 nights out of the same batch that came from the oven at the same time, the person was supposed to have a dream that would then show them the future for the coming year and the important things that would happen. Um, I think if you eat enough um, preserved fruit over 12 nights, you're certainly going to have dreams one way or another. <laughs> but but it's, it was, yeah, part of that was part of that, that kind of divination. And again, the understanding that the, the ancestors were, were present standing by to give some information or some wisdom for the year ahead. You have a note here about grave lights. Yeah, grave lights were, were it's, it's a lovely custom, but very often in graveyards, people would come and they would light candles and leave them on the graves, uh, either around the time of All Hallows at, at the beginning of November and also at Christmas time as well. It's a very big thing to this day to visit cemeteries and graves on Christmas Day, and on St. Stephen's Day, the day after Christmas Day, and to give the family the news of Christmas, to talk to the deceased about how Christmas went and that they were missed and to reassure them they were missed and that they were thought about and talked about during Christmas. And sometimes you'll find in the cemeteries around people will leave either Christmas flowers or Christmas flower arrangements or um, offerings of Christmas food and drink on the graves as well. So the grave life are quite literally a remembrance. Yeah, but as well, part of it was that if you were walking past a graveyard on Christmas Eve, you weren't supposed to look in. Hmm. Um, because if you looked in, you would see the, the dead having their Christmas party. And they would they were seen by... by um, I suppose nowadays we'd call them orbs or orb lights, lights around the graves. And that was considered unlucky. If you saw that, then the indication was you'd probably be dead by next Christmas yourself. Again, I'm reminded of several stories of, and I don't know if they're Christmas associated, but of um, people going into churches. These are like medieval stories. People going to churches, mm -hmm. you know, after midnight or something, and they're being a, having a service there, and it ends up being like, you know, mass for the dead, essentially. Absolutely, dead. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was, yeah, that was a very common thing that the churches would... Uh, that the candles would be seen lighting again, or that the, the they would hear carols in the church afterwards. Uh, and, and in fact, I know one or two of our own friars have had experiences of that. I had an experience quite like it myself when some years ago I was I was a chaplain in one of our universities here in Cork. And we have a very, very famous chapel there called um, the, the, the Honan. It's, it's after the person who founded it. It's known as the Honan Chapel. It's dedicated to St. Fiacre, but it's, it's the, 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 sorry, St. Finbar, but it's the, the, the Honan Chapel, a beautiful Celtic style chapel. And um, for 10 nights before Christmas, there's a, a Christmas carol concert with a different choir every night in it. And when you're the chaplain, you're in charge of opening up and locking up. So it was quite an exhausting period of time. You know, you'd be waiting for these these carol concerts to finish and for people to go and then to have to redo the whole thing. And it was always carols by candlelight. So you had all of the church lit with candles. We went through a lot of candles in those days. <laughs> and um, of course, your job at the end was to make sure all the candles were quenched and, and were, it was it was, you know, cleared. But the very last night, which was the night before Christmas Eve, we had finished about it was about 12 midnight by the time the group were gone. So it was slightly coming into Christmas Eve morning. I was absolutely exhausted. We'd quenched all the candles. I'd gone around and made sure everything was out and everything was done, uh, locked up. And I made my way towards the car park to, to drive off. And to this day, I don't know what it was, but something kept telling me, go back and check. And I'm not one of those people who checks things many, many times. But I, I, I said, OK, you know, my first year here as a chaplain, maybe I've forgotten something. I'll go back. And when I came back into the square, 
in, in the college, there's kind of an open square area where you can see the door of the church. I could see candles lighting in the church. Oh, wow. So I panicked and went straight back because it's a beautiful wooden roofed church. And I had all these kind of um, flashes of newspaper headlines, you know, new chaplain burns church to the <laughs> ground kind of thing. <laughs> right. So I, I arrived in and when I, by the time I got in, there was only one candle lighting in the window at that stage, but it was still lit. And I had absolutely 100% quenched the candle properly. So I said a few prayers for the dead and um, blew out the candle and got out of there <laughs> as quickly as I could at that point. Um, and thankfully, the, the church remains to this day. But yeah, it was it was rather interesting that the candles certainly seemed to be lighting again as I got towards the church. Yeah, it's interesting. That's a very, mm. very neat story. The Prayer for the Dead, I'm sure, weaves into purgatory and Christmas. Mm. And, and I, I think, you know, for for most people, they have, you know, a very basic understanding of purgatory, which is not good enough to go to heaven, not bad enough to go to hell, right? <laughs> the kind of waiting room. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I, I suppose, again, rather than thinking of this as kind of geographical terms, we, we speak of it more as, as a state of being, yes. you know? Yeah. So the purgatorial state is a state of, of, of purification, whereby someone is absolutely saved and, and loved and, and invited into eternity by the divine, into the fullness of life and light. But there is still adhering to them imperfection, or impurity. And so that the purgatorial soul is a soul that, that chooses not to enter into the fullness of life until that is purified. I suppose to some extent, for those who kind of have a, a kind of a a kind of a broader spirituality or idea, maybe to speak of things like, you know, karma still being with them to some to some extent. Mm -hmm. Um this idea that that the effects of our sins are are still with us to some to some extent at least of selfishness, of ego, of um, the kind of purification of the lower, the lower realities of humanity that still needs to happen. And it, it, it was the Christian teaching for, for a very long time that the vast majority of people will go through some form of purgation um, before entering fully into the divine light. So a purgatorial soul then was seen to be somebody who was in this, this state of suffering. Now, the, the suffering is the experience of longing to be united with the divine while at the same time forcing oneself to remain apart from the divine until one is purified. And in that sense, we would say that a ghost proper in the sense of a sentient ghost who is definitively the soul of a deceased person, mm -hmm. and they are much, much rarer than people think, that that is, is someone who is going through purgatory. And so when they appear or when they when they ha are allowed to appear, it's to seek um, spiritual assistance to move on, literally to, to seek the prayers of the living so as to move on. Uh, and that's why um, if I'm called to a, a haunting and it turns out to be an actual haunting, a full on human ghost haunting, the response is not exorcism or casting out. The response is simply care and compassion and prayer for that deceased person until they're they're able to to move on and, and enter fully into into peace. So Christmas was seen as a very privileged time when the purgatorial souls could appear to the living, particularly to their own family, and seek prayer and, and alms. And they were also seen to have a defensive role uh, at these times, and um, that they would protect the homes of their um, descendants and impart knowledge or information uh, to them in that way. Sometimes as well, the purgatorial souls were seen to appear as animals. I think 
recently you spoke about the, the black dogs and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, yeah. and one of the one of the positive ones, um, because there's also the negative black dogs, as you know, but but one of the, the positive ways that the souls of the dead would appear was as guard dogs um, guarding people on, on journeys and protecting them from from harm. Brother Richard, thank you once again for stopping by. Merry Christmas to you. And You're most welcome. Thank you once again. We love having you and uh, give our best to to everyone there. I would indeed. And I'm, I'm always happy to be to be part of the Strange Familiars conversation and, and a, a happy Christmas, a blessed Christmas and whatever holiday you celebrate, may there be blessing in it. Well, speaking of people that have helped the show, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy, you hear us talk about them all the time. They're a wonderful sponsor. Beyond being a sponsor, they're friends of the show, and they've helped us out in innumerable ways. They're listeners, and they're friends, and they're sponsors. So if you have a puppy and you need help, I can't think of a better place to help you than 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. You can find them at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. Whatever issues you're having with your puppy, they have solutions, whether it's mouthing and biting, potty training, fear and nervousness, barking, chewing on furniture or shoes or other things they shouldn't be chewing on, crate training, hyperactivity issue, leash training, and so much more. 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy can teach you what to do and also what not to do. Again, you can find them at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. They'll help you understand how your dog thinks and apply proactive training methods so you and your puppy can become perfect for each other. And thanks once again to 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. Yeah, if you start now, by spring, it'll be perfect. There you go. <laughs> Allison, keeping track of the, the days. Till spring. Yeah. <laughs> I want to thank Brother Richard for taking time to speak with me. Such a wonderful resource, Brother Richard. It's just, you know, some of my favorite conversations inside or outside of Strange Familiars. Just a wonderful connection we've made with him. I want to thank him so much for coming on the show. If you liked our conversation, it continues into a patron episode, at least one. It'll either be one long patron episode or two patron episodes. I haven't edited it yet of questions with Brother Richard. Uh, you know, not Christmas-based, just kind of random questions that people have for Brother Richard. He was kind enough to stick around after our super long Christmas talk to answer some questions from listeners. If you want to hear that, you can become a patron at Patreon, patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. I'm not sure when we will publish that, but it'll be sometime soon. In any case, we do two full episodes of Strange Familiars for our patrons every month. Sometimes we do even more content. There's different levels of support at Patreon, but no matter what level you go in at, you get those two full extra episodes of Strange Familiars every month. And once again, as we approach the end of the year, we really have to stop and thank our patrons. There's no Strange Familiars without our patrons. Can't happen. They make the show happen. They make us able to do this. It takes a lot of time to put this podcast together, a lot of research time, a lot of time interviewing people lot of time on site and a lot a lot of editing time if i put together an on-site episode for instance we're talking several hours of audio that gets edited down to you know probably one hour or so what you hear on the show so it's a lot of work 
It's work we love, but it does take up a lot of time. So without our patrons, we absolutely couldn't do the show. We just couldn't do it. So thank you so much, patrons. Thank you for making Strange Familiars happen. Again, if you want to help out, patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. So we couldn't find a super wintry graveyard scene. I wanted something with grave lights on it. You wanted a nighttime graveyard scene with a ghost or something? No, I, wanted, I actually <laughs> was thinking like a, like a winter graveyard scene. Oh, okay. And though Allison has a million graveyard photos, that might be a slight exaggeration. I have a million photos probably. But. <laughs> Maybe. You have quite a few graveyard photos. And we did find a, a one with a really neat grave decorations I mean, there are wreaths, but that's not unusual for a graveyard. That's not saying it's Christmas decorations. It looks like a rural graveyard and a big old decoration. There are lots of flowers and, and wreaths and stuff. That will be our curiosity of the week. It's dated April 23rd, 1954. So if you go to the show notes under this episode, you'll see an image of that photograph. You can click on that. It'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase that and other curiosities of the week. We still have a few of those pain tablets, although they keep selling, which is really cool. I don't know if they're selling because people are finding them randomly or if people are listening to that episode and going to Etsy. Or people are just looking for pain relief. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they're not taking this. Please don't take them. Really. Uh, there's still some frozen Charlotte dolls. Again, we've sold a few of those. There's a few left. So, And there's other curiosities of the week that haven't sold there. And even back to some of the uh, photos of the week, but while you're on Etsy, you can check out artwork. Got original artwork up there. I think I've got a few pieces. I've got prints of my artwork for sure. Got my books. Right now, all of them are in stock. Stock's getting low for Christmas, but we, we'll just order some more today. But right now, all of my books are in stock. If you order them from Etsy, they come signed. You don't even have to ask. I'll sign them automatically. Strange Familiars t-shirts. Again, right now, we have all sizes, small through 3XL. And much more. Our shop name on Etsy is Lost Grave, one word, appropriate for this week's photo of the week. But if you type in Strange Familiars, our stuff should come up. While you're on Etsy, make sure to check out our friends at Karmic Garden for their soaps and candles and all kinds of, uh, what do you call that, beauty supplies? Not even beauty supplies. What would you call it? Health. Health. Self-care. Health and self-care supplies. (laughs) Karmic Garden. And check out... Chad shop, Ruck Rabbit Outdoors for your woodsmany needs. And that is a word, woodsmany. We will be doing Strange Familiars long sleeve shirts coming very soon. Hopefully I'll be able to announce it sometime in the next few episodes. I came up with a design concept that I really, really like. It's different from the short sleeve shirt. It'll be a special one-time thing. I'm not sure how many print runs we'll do with this. We'll see how it sells. It's a long sleeve. It's going to be kind of printed in the metal shirt kind of way. Both sleeves will have prints on them and prints on the front and back of the shirt. I think t-shirts had things on both sides before metal shirts. Have yeah, you been but to the beach? Yeah, true, <laughs> true. But it's, it's come to, you know, kind of be known as the metal style. But in any case, it's a Strange Familiar's tour shirt. What could that possibly mean? We'll announce it when the design is ready and we can share it. I'm super excited for it. I know my personal tour stops are basically the living room the kitchen, and the bathroom. <laughs> That's Allison's winter tour. My, my winter tour. Ne'er shall she be without a cover. <laughs> yeah, don't we have a uh, 
Ask Me Anything episode coming up. Oh, yeah. We're going to do that next week. That's going to be kind of the episode between Christmas and New Year's there. You notice how those are never answer me anything. Like, there's no guarantee that they'll be answered. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Or answered the way people might like them to be answered. So come on back for that. Lots of questions for me. Lots of questions for Allison. It should be a really fun show. I'm looking forward to it. That'll be next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back soon with more Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. You can find more or purchase music by Stone Breath at stonebreath.bandcamp.com, where you can also buy Strange Familiars Episode 300 Multimedia Project, The Witch Cloud, stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Again, for that, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars where you can join the Strange Familiars Gathering Group. We're on Instagram, at Strange Familiars, one word. And you can always find us at strangefamiliars.com.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.